Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. The panic building around Ukraine is now a deadly modern war in Europe. Vladimir Putin at midweek unleashed a full-scale air and ground assault by Russia on Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and many other points. It's a compound global crisis as we put this program together. Collaborating with the Quincy Institute in a radio podcast series we're calling In Search of Monsters, we will get to some of the history behind the battle for Ukraine and the geopolitics around it. But first, a hint of the pain all through it. The writer Masha Gessen is an eminent activist with two passports, Russian and American, at home in two countries, outspoken in both. Masha reminds you that Vladimir Putin's assault on Ukraine this week is a devastation to the hearts and hopes of millions. You know, I'm not at all surprised, but I am sick to my stomach. I mean, it's just this awful feeling. Sometimes during Putin's tenure, I've been not surprised but shocked. I'm not even shocked. I just feel sick. You know, my friends are thinking about their friends and loved ones in Ukraine, the heartbreak of losing connection with them. I was texting with my closest friend in Moscow as Putin was speaking, and first she texted me, are you listening? And I said, yes. And then as soon as he was finished, she texted, does this mean I'm never going to see you again? People realize that the last of their connections to the outside world are going to be severed by this. Vladimir Putin doesn't understand the first thing about Ukraine. This is a country that has battled the demons of, you know, the post-totalitarian society, the post-Soviet state, and managed to create a government of the governed, not a perfect one. It has a lot of problems. It has corruption. It has oligarchs. It has all that. But it has social cohesion. It has a functioning judiciary. It has a political will to live in a better society. It's really hard for me to talk. I'm like struggling not to cry because it feels so awful because Ukraine was for, I think, a lot of us Russians. It was the embodiment of hope. It was an example of what could be. We could be that. We could break out of this curse of the totalitarian legacy. It's a country where people have proved their willingness to die to be able to live in a democratic society. They proved it during their revolution of dignity in 2013-2014 when thousands of people camped out in the dead of winter for weeks on end in Independence Square in Kiev who stayed there when the regime opened fire on them. Everyone in Ukraine knows that more than 100 people died for them to be able to vote in open and fair elections. And finally, this is a country that has proved that they're willing to mobilize and again die for their country when Russia attacked. You know, the Ukrainian military fell apart within days of the Russian invasion. It is hard to find anyone in Ukraine who did not in some way or another take part in supporting the, the self-defense effort. So all of that is not to talk so much about what heroes Ukrainians are, as it is to talk about the scale of the resistance that a Russian effort to 
install a puppet government there will encounter. And that tells us just how much blood will be shed, how much life will be lost. Masha Gessen's work appears regularly in The New Yorker magazine. Our guests to study the anatomy of the Ukraine crisis and its implications this hour has studied the Russia riddle all their lives. George Beebe ran the CIA's Russia desk toward the end of a long career in U.S. intelligence. First up is Monica Toft, Director of Strategic Studies at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. In the United States Army, she was a Russian-speaking intelligence officer. And now, Monica Toft, after months of waiting, can you explain what we're all watching in Ukraine? What I'm seeing, first of all, is a lot of uncertainty. We don't know where we're going yet. We've got President Biden making a speech and imposing pretty serious sanctions. Putin declaring two republics independent of Ukraine. More troops moving in. The idea that this is an invasion, uh, it's maybe it's a reinvasion that's been ongoing for 14 years. What I see happening is sort of an extension of an imperial project that Putin, you could make the argument he started in 1999 when he went into Chechnya even before he was elected fully elected as president of Russia, and then in 2014 into Crimea, and I skipped over 2008 in Georgia, 2014 into Crimea, and then into the Donbass and Luhansk regions. So for Putin, this is sort of trying to reconfigure Russia because he personally has a great deal of disdain, sadness. For him, this is personal, that, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed, and he had to witness that. I think we're witnessing the continuation of an imperial project under Putin. An imperial project, Monica, that's serious stuff. Should we have been surprised? You say it's been on his mind for 20 years. I don't think we should be surprised. I think there were signals along the way. You know, I wrote a piece in 2008 about Russia's recipe for empire and outlined exactly what Putin might do in order to allow himself and, you know, Russian troops to move into different pieces of territory within the former space of the Soviet Union. And he has followed that in lockstep, which is that you have loyalists on the ground, you support those loyalists, you put in place Place your own citizens or you make citizens on the ground, you know, Ukrainians into Russians and you pass out passports. You have misinformation or disinformation campaigns that give a pretext. This is a playbook. And then you destabilize the state that's in place in order to say that I, as the great leader of Russia and protector of ethnic Russians and Russian speakers and Russian citizens, have to go in and protect them. So I do indeed see this, Chris, as having been unraveling for some time time and part of a plan of Putin's. Monica, obviously we haven't been noticing or listening. Does he have a beef, though, that the United States, in advancing NATO toward his border, bears some of the responsibility here? Yes. I mean, that is his critical beef. In the early 90s, it was supposed to have been sort of a partnership for peace with Russia part of it. There was the Budapest Memorandum, which guaranteed security in Europe, particularly for the East European states. Again, Russia was sort of party to those conversations. But then the United States and its allies blithely went along and then just sort of consistently disregarded Russian concerns that NATO was expanding further east onto its territory, closer to its territory. Chris, it was 
not only NATO, it was the European Union and the European Union's Eastern Partnership. And it was interesting to listen to Masha Gessen. You know, I haven't heard the word totalitarian used as much in the last couple of days as I heard it in 20 years. But we are dealing with a totalitarian leader here, right? He's an autocrat, and he does not want liberal ideals. He doesn't want liberal capitalism and democracy on his doorstep because it will just display egregiously how corrupt and undemocratic Russia is. Monica, I just feel we're at a disadvantage in seeing how much more he cares about all this, not to mention how bold he is, but how much more he cares than we do about these stakes. Well, think about it, Chris. You know, this is in the backyard of Russia, right? The Russian Federation. And if it were the case that, let's say, you know, Russia decided perhaps to put some missiles in Cuba, how do you think the United States would respond to that? We've been there. We are still in a geopolitical world where there are spheres of influence when it comes to great powers. And the other thing that's happening here is as Russia, under Putin, is trying to impress upon the world that it is still a great power, it has a right to its own own sphere of influence, whether we agree with that or not, we would all love to believe that there's norms and states have sovereignty and that other states can't tell them what to do. But in the world of geopolitics, size still matters. And it's not just size, it's also nuclear weapons. And Putin is making it very clear to the West and to others that he wants to be and he wants Russia to be a major player on the global scene and ensure that his sphere of influence remains his sphere of influence. And with the West butting up into territories that he believes should be completely under his purview, he's going to push back. And and Chris, he has been pushing back, but we have not been giving it as serious consideration as we should have, which is why we're now at this point, we are on the brink of war. You know, brains count too, and character. Speak to the suspicion that Putin has lost his mind or hasn't considered the risks to his own interests. You could make that argument. I've seen some commentators make them in that argument. I'm not sure I buy it. Look, this is a smart guy, and he has managed to play us basically like a fiddle. You can think about Syria with Obama and the red line and Putin coming in and sort of supporting Assad after the United States said Assad is out, right? And interestingly, today, of course, Syria is recognizing the two new independent republics of Ukraine because he is such a good ally to Assad. So the idea that Putin has lost his mind, I don't agree. Look at us. We are sort of on our back heels here because he has really played this game quite well. I think where we've sort of missed the boat here is his willingness to use force. So I don't think he's lost his mind. In fact, he's been quite successful strategically. He got Crimea, didn't he? He set up a referendum uh, and he got Crimea. He's been sitting in Donbass and Luhansk now for years. He's a smart strategist. He's working traditionally using force, right, which is something anathema to the West. But for Putin, he's thinking, no, it's been quite effective. It worked for me in Syria. It worked for me in Georgia. It worked for me in Chechnya. It worked for me in Crimea. And nothing happened. He really didn't face that much punishment as a result. And by the way, he's still in power. And he's still in power to 2036. So personally, he's not hurting. And then the Russian Federation, we all understand about the rally around the flag effect, that actually this may actually help him domestically. Monica, I've got to ask you a very different question. What do we make of the flashes we see of ourselves in this behavior? I'm thinking specifically of the United States, George W. Bush's war of choice in Iraq, but also the war on Serbia to create a new state of Kosovo. 
Is this the way great powers behave? And are we in the game too? Yeah. You know, Chris, it's funny. I just finished a major project on U.S. interventions since 1776. And if you look at the United States, the last period since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we have been the busiest. So when we think about containment, you could make the argument that it's not Russia that necessarily needs to be contained alone, but also the United States. So when you talk about Kosovo, we went into Kosovo without UN sanctioning. We recognized South Sudan. We recognized West Timor. We recognized Eritrea. And so Putin, basically, when Kosovo happened, indeed, he made the argument that, okay, we've learned from this. If you're going to support self-determination movements, we are too. Coming up, George Beebe on sleepwalking into a war that all sides could lose. This is Open Source. Our guest, George Beebe, spent a quarter century in U.S. government intelligence thinking through the book he published three years ago. It's titled The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe. What part of that title are we looking at today, George Beebe? Well, I'm very sorry to say that a lot of what I warned about in that book, uh, which I uh, began writing in 2018 and published in 2019, is actually playing out today. I wrote it as what I call the pre-mortem to help people imagine how we could wind up in a direct confrontation with Russia over something like Ukraine. Uh, And I talked about a scenario like this in the book with the goal of helping people anticipate and avert that kind of disaster. But instead, I think actually both Russia and the United States have sleptwalked into this confrontation for a variety of complex reasons, but here we are. Sleepwalking. Sounds like the title of a great book on World War I. What do you mean? Well, and I explicitly compared the situation to what happened in World War I, which was a war that was not a war of aggression. It was not a war of ambition that some power said, hey, you know, I would like to have the territory of that country next door to me. Let's go get it. This was a case where the great powers of Europe found themselves entangled in what was essentially what Henry Kissinger called a doomsday, political doomsday machine, a perfect storm where entangled alliances and various incompatible ambitions, mistrust, misperceptions, uh, new technologies, all combined in a way that they were susceptible to a trigger that set things in motion. And once things got set into motion, the leaders of Europe really were powerless to divert that uh, set of events from a path toward disaster. And I'm sorry to say, I think that's the situation we find ourselves in right now. Point to today's triggers. The trigger is the thing that sets things off. It's not the cause. The cause is much more fundamental and complex. The trigger is going on right now in Ukraine, I think, and it has a number of aspects to it. Fundamentally, this is a tug of war over Ukraine's geopolitical fate, but is reflective of a larger tug of war between Russia and NATO over the contours of Europe's security architecture. 
the old architecture that we had during the Cold War and that was established in the 1970s and 1980s and helped to keep the peace there between two armed blocs, NATO and the Warsaw Pact, that obviously ended when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Warsaw Pact dissolved. And the question in the 1990s that we faced was, well, what will emerge as the new security architecture? The Russians wanted it to be a new structure in which they played a significant role as one of the decision makers, one of the great powers in Europe. It evolved in a different way where NATO became the dominant security organization in Europe, an organization in which Russia did not have a voice, did not have decision-making authority. And the Russians objected to that from the very start. It didn't start under Putin. Boris Yeltsin in 1994 at a summit in Budapest of the uh, Organization on Security and Cooperation in Europe gave a speech where he lamented all of this and warned that if NATO proceeded with plans to expand, that Europe would be plunged into what he called a cold peace. And this is not something that you know a handful of extremists in Russia oppose. This is a point that nearly everyone in Russia agrees on, that NATO enlargement, NATO's expansion up to Russia's borders is a destabilizing and unacceptable threat to Russia. George Beebe, you're a Russia specialist. I'd love you to tell us the peculiarly Russian pieces here, a combination of aggressiveness and fear, but also geography, culture, history. And one senses Putin carries all of it in his bloodstream. I think very much so, yes. Putin is not unique. He's not an outlier on Russia's political spectrum. He's basically a centrist, reflective of the center of gravity of Russian political opinion in many ways. You know, there are two big schools of thought when it comes to understanding Russian behavior. One you might call the offensive Russia view that Russia has you know, great imperial ambitions, that it is an authoritarian state that wants to spread authoritarianism. And you see this reflected in a couple of points that are common in Western political discourse. The first is that you know, Putin wants to rebuild the Soviet Union, rebuild the empire, reestablish that, that he laments its demise and wants to restore it. The catastrophe in the disbanding of the Soviet Union as he says. Yes. And, and the second thing that you hear is that Russia hates democracy. Putin hates democracy. It is a threat to Russia. It's a threat to Putin personally, and that he wants to snuff it out inside Russia, on Russia's periphery, and even in the United States. And you heard this in particular, you know, after the 2016 election here in the United States, where, you know, this is really about Putin hating democracy and wanting to destroy it here in the United States and everywhere. I think these are both actual distortions of what's going on. But that offensive school of thought is a, is a very common one. I would say the dominant school of thought in the United States uh, today. Juxtaposed against that is what I would call the defensive Russia school of thought. These are people like uh, John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago, the late Steve Cohen, who argued that Russia is playing defense against a Western military alliance that is expanding, has been expanding to Russia's borders, that any great power would object to 
the encroachment of a hostile or potentially hostile military alliance toward its borders, and that Russia is simply acting, as any great power would do, to defend itself. And you'll recall George Kennan, the famous American Russia expert, commenting to Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, uh, back in the 1990s when there was a debate in the United States over expanding NATO. And, and he told Friedman, look, this would be a catastrophic mistake. You know, if we were to expand here, bad things will follow. The Russians will react, you know, gradually, but very strongly. And then we will say, well, we, we always told you that's the way the Russians were. But he said that, in fact, is not the case. This is the product of a great power move on another that will inevitably provoke a reaction. So that's the defensive school of thought. Now, I come down in a little bit different place. And what I mean by that is I think there are aspects of both offensive and defensive motivations in what the Russians are doing. And they flow from... Russia's unique history, its geographic circumstances that prompts Russia simultaneously both to want to be a great power with all the ambitions that are associated with that and feel threatened and defensive at the same time. Now, here's what I mean by that. Russia is a country with practically no natural geographic defenses, unlike the United States protected by two large oceans, unlike some other countries protected by you know, large mountain ranges, other geographic features that make invasion difficult. Russia's basically a giant plain, relatively easy to invade without concern about geography, topography, uh, the things that pose obstacles to invaders. The Russians have dealt with that problem over the centuries through putting as much geographic distance as they can between the heartland of Russia and a potential invader. And that has worked pretty well, as Napoleon and Hitler both discovered. So the Russians believe that they can't actually survive given their circumstances, unless they are a great power. They don't believe that they can be like Sweden, a formerly great power that decided that it wanted instead to provide a great standard of living for its people. Russians don't believe that's an option for them. They have to be a great power that radiates power into their neighborhood and can veto things that their neighbors do that they believe threaten Russia. I've got to ask you, George Beebe, what do you do about a man with that mindset? Gorbachev seemed to have gotten over it. The next real leader in Russia went back to a completely different model. Gorbachev, I think, got over that because of some very important needs that the Soviet Union had. It had such an economic mess on its hands that it needed Western trade and technology. It realized it couldn't get that kind of relationship with the West unless it fundamentally changed the nature of its relationship with the West. Now, he thought, I think, that uh, he would be treated with respect 
that this would be welcomed by the West. He would be embraced as a partner. There would be a common European home, as he called it at the time. Right. He looks back on this and says today, and a lot of Americans don't pay attention to this, but he says today, hey, we got stabbed in the back. You know, we, we were patted on the back, encouraged, applauded, but in private, we were sabotaged. We were surrounded. We were betrayed. So Gorbachev is not a popular man among Russians these days. A lot of people think that uh, he made some major errors, one of which was underestimating the West's intentions, hostile intentions toward the Soviet Union and Russia. Putin has a very different perspective on all of that. He went through, a, I think, a, a period of education himself in that when he first became president of Russia, he reached out to the West and wanted to build a partnership. He wanted to build a cooperative relationship with Washington in part because he thought that was the best path toward rebuilding Russia, remaking it into a great power again, because it was a unipolar world. And, you know, if you wanted to be someone in that world, you needed to have a good relationship with the United States. He felt betrayed. He felt that he had reached out to us, proposed partnership, did some things that we should have recognized and embraced. Instead, he felt that we, like you know, Gorbachev, we took advantage of that, exploited it, and did so to hurt Russia. So he's quite bitter about that. Hmm. Monica Toft, we're all devoted to the Quincy Institute standards of restraint, rationality, serious consideration of true interests, avoiding war at almost all costs. What do we make of this sense that it's a jungle out there? and that the great powers, the last thing they practice is restraint, including us. Specifically, what, what are we learning from this whole Ukraine episode? When we think about restraint as a country and our national you know, strategy, we need to have a conversation as to what we believe is vital to securing our nation. Obviously, it's the homeland and some of our allies. But, you know, sadly, tragically for the Ukrainians, it is not part of NATO. Article 5 can't be invoked to come to its defense with the Russian troops entering. What I mean by that in a peculiar way is Russia is helping us to perhaps have that conversation about what are we willing to fight and die for. And by the way, we were similar with Kosovo. We Clinton was very clear, we're not going to put ground troops in. Uh, it was an air war. And, and fortunately, it worked against Milosevic and company. This is a much more formidable opponent. I mean, again, Russia is a nuclear armed state. It is a great power. We cannot forget that. And through the 90s, the hubris, right? The George H.W. Bush and company, that administration did a brilliant job ushering in the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and allowing the Soviet former Soviet leaders, now new Russian leaders, to save face. And then we became a unilateral, unipolar power through the 1990s and then into the early 2000s. And George is exactly right. If you remember, there was at one point a reset where the Obama administration tried to reset, but by then it was too late with Putin. Putin was like, I tried to reset with you guys. We're facing this global terrorist threat, which, by the way, we've been facing in the Caucasus. 
And we just, again, we're not listening, Chris. So what I think needs to happen is, is we need to listen better as a, as a country to what our opponents and also our allies need and desire from us and what we can deliver. But then as a country, what it is is that we're willing to fight and die for. And sadly and tragically, we signaled to Georgia that we were willing to do that. And of course, we were not. And Georgia ended up succumbing to Russian force. Uh, and here we are with Ukraine. And for the last couple of weeks, it's been, you know, this hand-wringing about, oh my gosh, uh, what are we going to do about Ukraine? Because we, with our strategic ambiguity, not really delineating and clearly outlining what it is that we're willing to sort of protect and defend, got us sort of to the brink of this crisis. And had we been a little bit more open, a little bit more communicative, and used diplomacy more than force, and not been so cocky about the role of force uh, in our interactions with our opponents, perhaps we wouldn't have come to this brink that we're at now. Let me ask you both, who is to speak for the Ukrainians' interest here once you've decided that it is not a strategic vital interest of ours? Who's to speak sympathetically to what Marsha Gessen was talking about, the valor of people who are trying to generate a new nation, a transformed nation, not least to speak back to Putin's tortured notion that Ukraine sort of emerged from the brow of Russia, which is factually completely indefensible. <laughs> we have a policy toward Ukraine, which is internally contradictory. The first part of it says that Ukraine has every right to be a member of NATO and that we are going to keep that door open to Ukrainian membership in NATO and that uh, declaration that we made at the uh, Bucharest summit that Ukraine one day would be a member of NATO remains in effect. We won't change that. But at the same time, the United States has already indicated that we will not go to war to defend Ukraine. We didn't do it in 2014. We're not doing it today. So we're simultaneously saying that Ukraine is not a vital interest, not important enough for us to go to war to defend, but we want it to be a treaty ally that would oblige us to go to war <laughs> to defend it. Those are not compatible positions. We need to reconcile that in our own mind. The second thing is that the United States complains about Russia having a sphere of influence. This is not acceptable. In the 21st century, we shouldn't be allowing countries to have spheres of influence, but we don't actually believe that. We never have. The United States has always had a sphere of influence, always claimed one, you know, dating back to the time of Monroe. We did not react to the Cuban Missile Crisis by saying, well, you know, Cuba has a right to ally with any country it wants and to defend itself by, you know, stationing foreign military equipment on its territory. That's its sovereign right. Not at all. We regarded that as an unacceptable threat to American security, and it was. The Russians are saying the same thing about Ukraine right now. I think the other thing that we need to bear in mind is, is that the tug of war over Ukraine, whether it will be part of the West or under Russia's control and domination, is not a tug of war that either side can win. So if we truly want to speak up and stand up for Ukrainians. To me, we have to find a way of ending this tug of war over Ukraine's geopolitical fate. 
The only way you can do that is to find some sort of compromise that says it will be neither yours nor ours. It will be removed from this geopolitical competition in some way. And there's a lot of ways you could do that, but that's fundamentally what has to happen. If Ukraine is going to find a path toward peace and prosperity. That was the Anatole Levin neutralization solution. It made a lot of sense to us. It's the Finland solution. It's the Ireland solution. It's a solution to many of those problems. I still don't know why it hasn't caught on. George Beebe, Monica Toft, stand by. Coming up, the model American diplomat George Kennan and the containment strategy that seemed to change Russian behavior. This is Open Source. George Kennan wrote the classic Cold War manual for dealing with the Russian riddle. John Lewis Gaddis, the historian now at Yale, wrote the big book on George Kennan. The long-term goal of containment was to be not to tell the Russians what they had to do, but to create circumstances in which the Russians themselves decided that they had to do what we had uh, wanted them to do, that it was in their interests to change their policies. And indeed, that's what happened. Gorbachev in the 1980s was the final realization of the vision that Kennan had had back in the 1940s. There were a couple of poignant meetings between Kennan and Gorbachev in which Gorbachev welcomed him, embraced him enthusiastically as someone who had understood Russia and in some ways had loved Russia from the very beginning. So did Kennan think that Gorbachev was in some way a proof that this power structure could be disciplined into something like uh, civility, cooperation? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it certainly was the proof, uh, for sure. Our guests are George Beebe, later the CIA's Russia desk, and Monica Toft of the Fletcher School at Tufts. George Beebe. What was it that George Kennan got right? Did he get anything wrong? It makes wonderful reading all these years later. Well, I think the the strategy that uh, Kennan put together, this strategy of containment, was based on an understanding of the threat, number one, an understanding of where America's most important interests lay, and a sound understanding of the tools that we had for securing our interests against the threat that we faced. And he did not believe that the Soviet Union primarily posed a military threat. His belief was that the Soviet Union posed primarily an ideological slash spiritual and moral threat. And his response was to build up Europe to make it more resilient, less vulnerable to the kinds of moral collapse and vulnerability to communist ideology so that a balance of power could be established in the world that would counterbalance Soviet power and create an international environment in which the United States was safe, our key interests were protected, and it would allow for the evolution of that Soviet system over time, which he didn't think was sustainable over the long run. And I think that proved absolutely correct. Uh, It wasn't sustainable in the long run, and the balance of power that we created in the world was quite effective. So what are the lessons of that for today? I I was just going to say, we're caught again, one could say, between 
serious war and appeasing a dictator. What's the successor policy to containment? Well, we're not going to contain the Russians in the same way that we contained the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was essentially an autarkic economy. It was not integrated into the world. It was actually, you know, walled off from the world and wanted to be. It regarded integration into the world as you know, a threat. And it was a revolutionary power. It wanted to change the outside world. The Russians are not that way. They think of themselves as a part of the world. They're complaining that they're being cut off, that they're being shut out. They look at Europe and they say, wait a minute, you know, you've walled us off from Europe. You've not integrated us. You've not allowed us to be a decision maker in all of this. They don't pose an ideological threat. And I think this is one of the big misconceptions that people have about Russia these days. Russia is saying, let's make the world safe for diversity. Really? You want to be a democracy? Great. Do that. That's up to you. But Russia has a unique culture, a unique history. We know how to run our country, all the peculiarities that are involved. Let us do that, please, and stay out of our affairs. <laughs> this is a much different challenge than we face with the Soviet Union. Back then, you know, one of the things that Kennedy pointed out was that we shouldn't be universalist in our approach to the world. We should recognize that the world's a big place, lots of different cultures and histories and beliefs and values. We can't make the world look like the United States. In other words, we can't approach the world as, as universalists. We need to be particularists. And I think today, one of the ways out of the situation that we're facing is we have to return to that conception, that, that Kenanesque conception of diversity, recognizing that the world's a big place. Russia's not going to be run like the United States is run. If we approach the world in that way, couple it with a balance of power approach to things, we can create, I think, an international environment that is safe for American interests and that allows countries like Russia, like China and others to evolve in an international environment that is, they don't perceive as threatening. Everybody's talking security architecture, rebuilding it in Europe. How do you create a standard that if you're feeling secure, but I'm not, it's not a system? This is what diplomacy is for, Chris, right? So Russia hadn't been this insecure in the late you know, 1990s, early 2000s. It's only when there was sort of the extension of the EU and the expansion of NATO that you started seeing the insecurities really sort of come to the fore, right? So so the idea is you need to have dialogue uh, with your opponents. Diplomacy is not only for uh, your friends. And what's really great about Kennan is that he appreciated and loved Russia for Russia. And he understood Russian culture, sort of the Russian mindset, where Russia was coming from, its history, its narratives. And I think we've forgotten that as we've moved, you know, with this triumph of the end of the Cold War and sort of the, the, the arrogance of the liberal Western hegemonistic project that's been sort of promulgated on the world when there are a number of countries, a number of places that say, no, 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 we may want to do things somewhat differently. And so what was so valuable about Kennan was that he understood 
understood that there may be differences and that Russia, by the way, because he understood the country very well and the language, may pursue it differently. And by the way, he had no love for communism and he understood that it was communism that was expansive, that that was the revolutionary ideology and that Russia might grow out of that. I do think there are ways forward, but it's going to require for the United States to accept that perhaps the project that we've been trying to advance in coordination with our allies, which is a wonderful thing, right? I'm not saying that we that, that it wouldn't be ideal if the rest of the world could adopt it, but we can't impose it. And so what we've been doing is imposing it. And why Putin and company feel threatened is that it was unilateral. It wasn't done in coordination. And at the grand strategic level, it's an interaction, right? Your move is going to have an impact on another state or another actor. And we seem to have forgotten that. And that's back to that arrogance uh, where we really need to start engaging with our partners on the international scene, much more so on their own terms, listen to what they say and push back and hopefully not get to the point where now we're on the brink of a war. uh, Because, you know, who's sitting on the sidelines watching all of this? perhaps with some humor, but perhaps with some, you know, thinking, wow, the West is, is not as formidable as we thought, is China, right? So we think that we're, we have a formidable opponent in Putin, but China is sitting there and watching this, you know, with its population size, with its economy humming, with its buildup of its military. And by the way, we have allies in that region that we've committed to. Uh, we better learn pretty quickly how to adapt and get our strategic priorities in place and then learn how to deal with our opponents on the other side. Whose move is it this week, this winter, this year, to say we're ready to do something differently? Our civic culture, it's not bursting with impressive political talent at this moment. Yeah, no, I think you're right. But I mean, the first order problem is, of course, most Americans, most people around the world don't care about foreign policy. So you have to overcome that hurdle first and foremost. Um, And then the idea of civic culture, you're right, it needs to be developed. And people need to care about what its nation is doing, how it's being represented, where our tax dollars are going. Uh, Look, we just came out of the long wars on terror. Billions of dollars, trillions of dollars spent, lives lost. Maybe starting with our children, climate change is something that's focusing, you know, our minds and our children's minds, but really sort of instilling this at a much younger age so that people care because it's going to have, you know, the sanctions, for instance, this is going to hurt. Right. Yeah, it's going to hurt the Russians, but it's also going to hurt us. Right. And so starting those conversations early, uh, starting them with our youngest, you know, in schools uh, and actually making sure that our high schools are producing citizens who are thinking civically and civically minded, not only about the economy and their pocketbooks. Right. But then also about foreign policy and global policy, because we are such an interconnected world today. George Beebe, your turn. Whose move is it and what does it sound like? Well, I think the United States is facing a formidable challenge internally in the country. Uh, Regardless of what side of the political aisle you sit on, I think we all agree that the country is going through a very difficult time with a lot of polarization, uh, a collapse in trust in fundamental institutions, a loss of uh, civil discourse uh, in the country, All of that needs a great deal of attention. I'll flash back a few decades to the the late 1960s when the United States was going through a a period of internal trauma and was overextended abroad uh, in a very unpopular and unsuccessful war in Vietnam 
and facing the rise of a peer great power challenger in the Soviet Union, which was attaining parity in its nuclear arsenal and looked like quite a formidable rival to us. And how did the the Nixon-Kissinger White House deal with that? It attempted to, to pursue detente with the Soviet Union, arms control. It tried to stabilize that competition. And it sought to exploit friction between China and the Soviet Union to complicate the Soviet Union's geopolitical situation. And the goal behind all of that was to buy some breathing space for the United States overseas so that it could focus on healing at home. Although the particulars of our circumstances at home and abroad are different today, that fundamental goal of trying to stabilize the external environment so that we can focus on healing at home uh, and put us in a better position over time of dealing with what I think is our fundamental uh, geopolitical challenge, which is China overseas. That's what we ought to be doing. What we have done instead is pursue dual hostility toward Russia and China In so doing, we've driven them together, making them a much more formidable geopolitical challenge than either would be individually. You know, we're about to walk into a major confrontation with the Russians that will have profound implications for America internally, uh, not just on our economy. I think it will exacerbate a loss of trust in our uh, government and our fundamental institutions, which is quite concerning. I think we need a a, a fundamental rethinking of what we're doing in the world and how we're doing it. There are people who, looking for precedents, focus on the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962. What we forget is that it ended in a real compromise, but there was also a secret. John F. Kennedy persuaded Khrushchev to get the missiles out of Cuba, but he also promised to get our missiles out of near-Soviet range in Turkey, also in Italy. What does that tell you about the possibilities here, especially about compromise? Well, it, it makes me optimistic. So look, in any negotiation, if it's done well, neither side is completely happy, right? That's what you're told, right? It's, everybody's got to compromise and accept not their best out, outcome. It, why it makes me optimistic is, is that there are a number of solutions short of war, right, short of confrontation and conflict uh, that could potentially be achieved. Like what? So we agree, you know, in, in the case of, of Ukraine, we agree, we've already talked about this, that Ukraine may serve as a buffer between the sort of the Russian Federation space and Western Europe. However, it get guarantees from both sides that its economy is going to be helped out. The economy has sort of been trashed for the past couple of years uh, and that its security is going to be guaranteed, right? So that's a compromise. Russia doesn't get to control it. Ukraine doesn't get to be part of NATO, but at least Ukraine is whole. Uh, the economy can, can recover and socially Ukrainians can go about living their lives, which they want to do. We can recommit to treaties and re- negotiate treaties on conventional balances, on troop deployments, which Putin is quite nervous because they're coming up closer to the Russian Federation. Chris, there are a number of measures that could be taken that can sort of reassure each side that indeed they have a stake in the game. It's not being imposed unilaterally because right now we're in a tit-for-tat 
situation where we do something and then Russia does it back. And what we want is, is we want a, a conversation about, okay, this is what this side wants, this is what the other side, where can we meet in between? And I, and I hate to say, but Ukraine, it's probably going to have to sort of be Finlandized, neutralized, you know, serve as a neutral buffer uh, between the two and not become a member of NATO. But that doesn't mean that it's forgotten. George Beebe, a last word? Well, um, I think the, uh, the solution to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which you outlined, which was a combination of the threat of military force, and, and Kennedy did issue an ultimatum to, to Khrushchev that uh, you know, if those missiles are not gone, if we don't have an agreement by tomorrow, uh, we will attack. But he coupled that with um, an accommodation, a willingness to say, yes, we will agree we will not invade Cuba. We will agree to remove Jupiter missiles from Turkey and Italy. That, to me, puts the lie to the notion that the chief danger that we face is appeasement, that every crisis is Munich, and that the one thing we should never do is to try to accommodate the other side, to reward aggression. What happened there was we actually resolved that crisis. We avoided disaster. And it did not do the things that the uh, anti-appeasement crowd warns of. It did not embolden Khrushchev. He did not say, aha, this is a, you know, a weak United States and now I'm going to see where else I can you know, advance our ambitions and our ag- aggression. No, it actually kicked off an era of stability and arms control and a mutual recognition that we were essentially co-hostages in this nuclear age where the security of one side depended on ensuring adequate security to the other. To me, that is the kind of understanding that we must have today. We need to find a compromise that is not simply giving in to Russian demands, but finding a way to secure our own interests. And one of those, of course, is is a stable and peaceful Ukraine and respect Russia's own security concerns as well in a way that can usher in a period of stability. It is attainable in principle. We're not on that path right now, unfortunately. We're staying on the case and on the path. George Beebe and Monica Toft, thank you so much. I've learned a lot this hour. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thanks also to Masha Gessen, who wrote Surviving Autocracy, and John Gaddis, who wrote George F. Kennan, An American Life. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Monica Toft is a non-resident fellow of the Quincy Institute. You can read her mind and many others in the Quincy Institute's online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leighton. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of smart, thoughtful, independent podcasts. If you're already nostalgic for Christmas 2021 or looking forward to Christmas 2022, check out the latest episode of the Hub & Spoke show, Iconography, 
Host Charles Gustine brings back a beloved and newly remastered 2016 episode about Charles Dickens's timeless story, A Christmas Carol. It's called Ebenezer Scrooge. You'll find it at iconographypodcast.com. And you can check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.